Welcome to the Old Time Radio Hour on Sid Valley Radio. This is Sid Valley Radio. This week on the Old Time Radio Hour, we'll be listening to a half-hour crime show, followed by a 30-minute drama program. So, just sit back and relax. As we revisit the truly golden age of radio. Christopher London, created especially for radio by the most widely read mystery story writer in the world, Earl Stanley Gardner. Produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And starring Mr. Glenn Ford. I am Christopher London private investigator and sometimes student of the teachings of the Orient. In the faraway monastery of the moon of yesterday in the hills of western China, I learned many things. I like to think that one of them was tolerance, but I find it hard to be tolerant of greed and murder. Yet any man who agrees to look for a beautiful missing heiress along the San Francisco waterfront is asking for trouble, and usually he gets it. In this case, it was me, and I got it. It started in the lavish Knob Hill home of Arthur J. Manners, attorney at law, where I had been invited on a professional basis. Fix up your drink, London? No, thanks. I asked you to come here because I didn't want to talk about this thing at the office. Oh, that's a nice place you have here. Awfully nice. Oh, it's too big. Too expensive. Now, first I'd better show you the young lady's picture. Hmm. To Arthur, my dear friend and guardian, Helen... Oh, she's a beautiful girl, Mr. Manners. Ah, too beautiful. Too rich, too spoiled. From the time her parents died five years ago, Helen Falconer has been a constant worry to me. And now this. This time I'm really worried. Now, let's see. He said a week ago she arrived on the plane from Mexico. Yes, for her first visit in more than a year. She wired me when to expect her, and she was on the plane. I checked. I found somebody who remembers seeing her get into a dark blue sedan. And that's all, London. She's disappeared. Vanished. And just when I have to produce her in court next week for an accounting of my guardianship. What about relatives, friends? No living relatives and no friends in San Francisco. She's never here for more than a few days at a time. Doesn't live anywhere for more than a couple of months at a time. The French Riviera, Rio, New York, Acapulco. Only time I know where she is is when she wires me for money. Well, you've checked the hospitals, I suppose, in the morgue. Certainly. Why haven't you gone to the police? Afraid to. That's why you're here. Uh, where did I put that? Uh, oh. Here, you better take this. A driver's license. Yeah, she applied for it last time she was here. Age, height, hair, eyes, and so on. Thumbprint, signature. Might help. It might indeed. You'll know her by a ring she wears. She never takes it off. Antique emerald ring. Heavy gold setting. Stone engraved with a serpent and an arrow. Find that ring and you'll know who it is even if she has her head in a sack. Yes, come in. There's a Mr. Lawrence Scoville. Oh, tell him to go away. I'm busy. I said I'd call him if I heard anything. Yes, sir. Oh, Scoville. I should have told you about him, London. Claims he's engaged to Helen. Met her recently in New York. Well, maybe, maybe not. Says she wired him she was coming and to meet her here in San Francisco. Spends his days mooning around my office. I wish he'd go back to New York. He gets on my nerves. Well, maybe I'd better start by seeing him. No. That's just a waste of time. He doesn't know a thing. You interest me, Mr. Manners. Have you changed your mind about wanting me to locate this girl? Changed my mind? No. Why? Because you're stalling. I... Yes. I suppose I am. 
But it's because I'm worried. I don't know how much I should confide in anybody. In that case, we're both wasting our time. Goodbye, Mr. Manners. Now, wait. No, London, sit down. Please. All right. I have reason to believe that Helen has involved herself in some sort of a smuggling operation. For the thrill of it, nothing more. That may be that the headquarters of this gang is at a waterfront dive named El Toro or El Torero, something of the sort. Mind you, I don't say it's true, but it, it may be true. Now, you must have some reasons for believing it. Well, I'm not at liberty to give my reasons. I, I merely warn you that searching for her may lead you into some danger. Well, in a way, Mr. Manor's danger is my business. I'll keep in touch with you. Well, now, I'll say this. Nobody ever began a search for a missing girl with more clues. A waterfront dive named El Toro. El Torero, or something of the sort. Now, it wasn't in the phone book, but I thought I knew how to find it. You take a stroll along the Embarcadero in the fog and you might find anything. Tony. I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't hurt you, did I? No. This fog is pretty thick, isn't it? What's the matter? You lost? Well, in a way. I was looking for a place. Uh, I forget the name. Stupid. Yeah. What you want there? Oh, a drink. I... Don't mind if I do. <laughs> well, fine. Let's go. Oh, yes, I remember it now. Oh, that's swell, honey. El Torero. El Toro. That's it. A joint. Strictly a dive. Well, you know where it is? What do you want to go there for? Well, I told you. Yeah. You said a drink. What is it really? A dame? Mm, maybe. You were uh, going to buy a drink anyway. Well, certainly. Okay, honey. Only no dame you're looking for is going to be at El Toro. I'm going to sit at a table. Uh, sure. How about right here? Huh? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I get the chair here. Hey. Now that I see you in the light, you know you ain't a bad-looking guy. What's your name? Smith? Yeah, yeah, Smith. Huh. I thought it was. I'm Babe. What'll it be, folks? Make mine a ginger bourbon. I think you can find an El Toro or its equivalent on any dockside in the world. The retreat of the happy companions in Hong Kong was another El Toro. And the sanctuary of the affectionate friends in Shanghai was another. El Toro. A small, dark place within the sound of the sea where men speak in low voices to each other of their plans and schemes to catch fortune by the tail. In the small, dark place, there were seven or eight seafaring men, a couple of women sitting together, quietly, waiting, I think, for something that would never come. Well, there was a piano player, a bartender, and a waiter, and babe and me. At another time, perhaps El Toro would have been raucous with the sounds of fighting and of laughter, but tonight... Well, tonight it was brooding in the fog, waiting. Hey, babe, I've been looking all over for you. You found me. Uh, Mr. Smith, this is Gus. Say hello to the man, Gus. Hello, hello. Hello, Gus. Who asked you to sit down? My feet hurt. Just make port, Gus? A Mary Maloney. Mm. Irish ship? Greek. Mm. How long you been gone, Gus? 
Oh, don't you remember? I should remember how long you've been gone. I never even seen you before. Babe, listen. Get lost. I'm busy. I went up to the room before I come looking for you. I brought a case of some kind of Greek stuff. Greeks don't drink. Oh, they don't, huh? What, uh, what else did you bring? We're still married, ain't we? Who says we ain't? Yeah. I brought some perfume and stuff. Well, come on, then, you overgrown droop. Is it okay if I take a poke at Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith's a friend of mine. Oh, but, babe, I just got... Okay. Just one, though. Stand up, Mr. Smith. You're in the wrong port. It'll be a pleasure. Hey, babe. Where's my upper plate? Here, droop. Oh, that's lucky. Don't even crack. That's a nice lift you got, Mr. Smith. No hard feelings. No, not at all. Then try my lift. I don't suppose I was out more than a minute or so. But when I came to, Gus and Babe were gone. And three new customers had arrived. Two men and a girl. They sat at a table in a shadowed corner. Almost certainly the girl was the one I was looking for. Okay, mister? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, I'll clean this up. Oh, what hit me? Uh, first day's home from a voyage. Gus always does that. He don't mean no harm. What do you have? Say, those uh, three people over there, gentlemen, they just come in? Uh, oh, yeah. While you wasn't paying no attention. Uh-huh. Here's a buck. I guess you must have dropped it. Thanks. You know them? Not me, mister. I don't know nothing. Uh, do they come here very often? Oh, mister, why don't you go home? We have enough trouble around here without strangers. It just ain't healthy for strangers here. Especially strangers with noses. Noses? Which they stick into other people's business. Oh. No. why don't you go home? I recognized the girl from the photograph Manners had shown me. Although her hair was a different shade, she was heavily suntanned, and the clothes she wore left so little to the imagination that it was hard to concentrate on her face. But if I had needed further proof, I saw the flash of emerald green as she lifted her hand to her cheek. The men with her? One was Oriental, Manchurian probably. The other may have come from the Middle East. Now, suddenly they seemed to come to some sort of agreement. I got up. The Manchurian spoke an inaudible word or two to the girl, and the two men left El Toro together. Well, it seemed obvious that they would soon return, so I took advantage of the moment. <clears throat> Excuse me, Helen Falconer? What? Who? You're Helen Falconer? That's what I thought you said. I never heard of her. Have you got a minute? Sit down. Yeah, thanks. You don't want to change your mind. About what? About being Helen Falcon. I told you I never heard that name before. What's this all about? You know, it's funny. I got an idea that I was intended to meet you here. You were intended to meet me here? Yeah. Or, uh, Helen Falcon, huh? Oh, we're back to that again, huh? You know, I'm getting kind of tired of Helen... What's her name already? Did you really want to meet her? Yeah. You see, she was supposed to look exactly like you. Oh, you don't know her then? 
Well, a man showed me a picture. Arthur J. Manners, an attorney. And she looks like me? Exactly. Um, how do you like the way she looks? Oh, I like it. <laughs> Have you got a name? Yeah. Christopher London. I'm... Now, what difference does it make? Call me Helen if you want to. Helen... What's her name? Cigarette. Helen. Thanks. Yeah. That's a good-looking case. Gold? Hmm? Yeah, I guess so. Oh, it's shiny as a mirror. Here, take it back before it sticks to me. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, here's the light. You know, I'm wondering about you. As a matter of fact, I'm wondering about me, too. What do you mean? Well, I'm, I'm wondering if I could get up right now and walk out of here. And forget me. Yeah. Yeah, and forget you. Do you want to try? Uh, not yet. <laughs> Hey, that's a beautiful ring. Is it an emerald? Oh, it's just some kind of green stone. Hey, mind if I look at it? That's huh. carved serpent and arrow. Well, I imagine that's pretty valuable. Aren't you kind of taking a chance wearing around a place like this? Well, I usually wear it turned around with a stone on the other side, like this. Why not simply leave it at home, then? Oh, no. I never take it off. Yeah, sort of good luck charm. Sort of. Has it brought you any? Good luck? Yeah. <laughs> All the time, Christopher. All the time. Helen. Oh, yes, that's me, isn't it? Yeah. Does the name Scoville mean anything to you? Lawrence Scoville? You know more people that I never heard of. Helen, listen. I'm serious. Now, do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Where were you a week ago tonight? Oh, two weeks ago. Well, a month ago. Don't you know? Of course I know. Well, then where? Why do you care? Well, answer me. No. Answer me, Helen. Can't you remember? Now, where are you going? Don't come with me. Why? They'll be back soon, and I have to go. Not without me. Waiter, how much? A buck twenty. All right, here you are. Come on, Helen. Christopher, don't. Come on. Now, what are you afraid of? Christopher, can you see in this fog? Oh, not much. Neither can I. Hold on to me. Helen, it's important. Who are the men who are... Who are the men you are with? The men who are coming back. Hold me. No, don't you understand? You've got to answer my question. I don't know. I don't know. Hold me, Christopher. Christopher. Helen. No. You mustn't ask me anything. It's not safe. Well, if you're in danger... Then... I'm in no danger. I know what I'm doing and I'm safe and protected. But don't ever try to find me again, Christopher, because that's dangerous for you. Worse danger than... Look out! Where is he? Over here, Inspector. Now you, what's the date? Why, the fifth thing. You know what city you're in? Oh, San Francisco. What's your name? What? Oh... Christopher London. I think he's okay, Inspector. Oh. He started coming to a minute ago. Yeah. Hello, London. Oh, Inspector Griffith. It's too bad you weren't here a while ago. What happened? Well, I I'll tell you, I we was standing along here somewhere with my arms around one of the most beautiful women I ever saw. Very funny. Hey. You didn't see who hit you? No. Might have been a sailor from somewhere in the Middle East. 
Maybe a Manchurian. You kill me, London. What were you doing down here? Well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. But I seem to have been robbed. You're surprised? Yeah, let's see. Well, wallet's gone. Letters, cards, money. <laughs> oh, what do you know? They missed my cigarette case. Well, you can sign a report in the morning. How do you feel? Bad's bad, Inspector. Not good. Get in. We'll take you home. <laughs> Want to stop the receiving hospital? Oh, that song will take care of me. Oh, yeah, that Chinese boy of yours. Is he a doctor, too? No, that song can do anything. And do it with quotations. <laughs> Say, Inspector, I'm going to ask you a favor. Yeah? All right, here's my cigarette case that those guys missed. It's got some fingerprints on it. Will you have them checked fast? Give it to me. Not careful, careful of those prints. Huh? Tell your grandmother. You know, it takes a while. Even if I told you where to look in the file? Well, that might help. A driver's license issued to Helen Falconer, this city. What's the angle? Well, if there is an angle, you'll be the first to know. All right, you can let me out here. Okay. San Francisco Police, 11 p.m. San Francisco Police. Helen, F A L C O N E R. Dan, I want that cigarette case back. You'll get it after I check. As I dragged myself up to my apartment, I hoped that our song would be waiting for me with tea and many ancient Chinese quotations. He was, but he was not alone. I had a visitor in a gray flannel suit and a striped silk tie. Mr. Lennon, I'm Larry Scoville. I, I wanted to talk to you about Helen Falconer, but the way you look, I... Well, I mean, I... Well, I guess it'll have to wait until tomorrow. Uh, it's all right. That's <laughs> all right. My injuries aren't fatal. Now, well, sit down. I'll be with you in a minute. All right. Call me to London. I will make first aid. Yeah. Oh. This warm, damp cloth will soon erase the signs of violence yeah. as the soft snow hides the scars of the gardener's toil. Is it still bleeding? There is no more blood now. May this helpless one inquire what happened? Oh, hand me the towel. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I don't know our song, but I got an idea that this is not the first nor the last blood that will be shed in this case. Here you are. Has Mr. Scoville been waiting long? Not long. That looks a little better. All right, I'll see what he wants. Oh, bring us something to drink, will you? to it, Mr. London. I was in Mr. Manor's office and happened to overhear something that made me think he'd ask you to search for Helen. If you can't tell me anything about where she is or if you don't know, okay, I, I understand. But can you tell me this? Is she still alive? That's no good worrying, Scoville. Now, tell me again. You say somebody broke into your room at the hotel. Now, at what time? Oh, it must have been between 8 and 10.30 tonight. And nothing was taken? Nothing at all. You're sure about Certain. it? Certain. And you've no idea what they were looking for? I can't imagine. All right. Uh, Scoville... Have you known Helen a long time? Well, only a few weeks, really, but it was long enough for us to fall in love. Then you don't know very much about her. I mean, who her friends are or what she does here and abroad. Well, I... No, I guess that's true, but... I'll, been... get, I'll get it off, son. Why, Mr. Manners. Good evening, London. Oh, come in. I, uh, I was in the neighborhood, and I thought I'd take a chance that you were still awake because I... Oh, Scoville. Hello. Well, you had an accident, London? No more humiliating than painful. It's nothing. 
Oh, sit down, sit down. Oh, no time. I'm on my way home. I, I just stopped in to tell you... Uh, this concerns you too, Scoble. To tell you that I've seen my ward and talked with her. Oh, you did? Is she all right? Quite all right. When, when can I see her? I'm afraid... Well, I'm afraid you can't see her. She, uh... Well, the fact is, she's fallen in love with somebody else, and she wants you to forgive and forget, I believe the expression goes. No. No, I don't believe it. She's very definite about it. Now, London, I'm glad to say that my suspicions were entirely unfounded. I'll send you a check in the morning, and if you'll return that driver's license, we can consider the matter closed. I'm sorry, Manners, I haven't got the license. I lost it. Oh. Well, that's not important, then. Good night. After Manners left, I got my hat and coat, in spite of Asang's protests. And then I had trouble with Scoville. You know something about Helen, don't you? You're going out to meet her now. Scoville, there's nothing I can tell I'm you. I'm going with you. I, I don't believe Manners. I don't believe she'd do that to Oh, me. it'll be all right, Scoville. We'll talk about it tomorrow. You go back to your hotel and I'll call you there in the morning. But London, I... Ah, son. Mr. London, it is not for the trembling lamb to give counsel to the lion, yeah. but... Sure, sure, sure. You don't want me to go out, huh? In the night, the tender rice plants sleep. Yeah, yeah. And sleeping grow. Look, I know, I know. I'm taking the car, our song. If anybody calls, you don't know when I'll be back. Poor Scoville standing on the street. I got my car out of the garage and headed for the waterfront. For a while, I thought another car was following me, but the fog made it impossible to be sure. I parked my car about two blocks from El Toro and started to walk up the Embarcadero. I thought I heard steps behind me, but, but when I halted, they halted too. Then when I started again... They started. I'd walked about a block when... Scoville. Back a block, I found a telephone at an all-night drugstore and was lucky enough to get Inspector Griffith at Homicide. Okay, London, I've got it all. Go back and wait till we get there. Now, just a second. Did you find out anything about those fingerprints? Yeah, I'll bring the cigarette case with me. Well, did the prints match? Yeah, they match. I thought they would. So what? So now you know who um, Dame is named Helen Faulkner. Wait for us. But I didn't wait for Griffith and the men from Homicide. I passed the crumpled figure that had been Lawrence Scoville, alone and shrouded in the fog. There was nothing I could do or say, so I didn't pause. He had been alive, and now he was dead, but uselessly, wantonly dead. In front of El Toro, there was a taxi waiting. The door was open. A girl came out, her face concealed by a veil. But I saw a flash of emerald green as she entered the cab. There was no need for me to follow her. I knew where she was going. I knew where she had to be going. And I was sure that with some fancy illegal driving, I could get there first. I parked my car in the shadows. A taxi pulled up not more than a minute later. I followed her up the gravel walk as quietly as I could and stood behind her as she knocked on the door. Yes? Arthur, what happened? I was... I'm right behind you. Well, shall we go in? Uh, what is this? Did you come here together? Close the door, Manners. This is no time for jealous quarrels. Well, now, what is this, London? What do you want? I want to make amends. 
for the death of a young man who died because I unconsciously led him to his murderer. We were in Manor's elegant study, the three of us. A girl, still beautiful, but pale and tense. Arthur J. Manners, attorney at law, calm now, almost too self-assured. <laughs> and Christopher London, who probably looked as if he'd spent a night in a bowling alley as a stand-in for a ten-pin. Now, Manners was being pleasant. Now, I'd never seen him quite so pleasant. Well, I'm glad that you and Helen could meet here. We met at El Toro. With the briefing you gave me, I couldn't have missed her. You arranged our meeting. You wrote the script and directed the play. But you didn't figure on this ending. Christopher, listen to me. What's your name, Helen? Uh, uh, Arthur, what's he talking about? What do you mean, London? If you've got anything to say, say it. She's Helen Falconer, you know that. Christopher, I, I can explain about those awful men at El Toro. But it was just a silly... I don't know. I, I get into things like oh, that. Oh, you fools. Don't you see how transparent you've been? How clear as glass? Get out of here. Get out. Manner, sit down. That's better. Now, let's talk. Helen Falconer was your ward. You managed her estate. She was out of the country most of the time, and your expenses were heavy. A house like this costs a lot to buy and to live in. And a girl like this runs into money, too. I think you've been taking Helen Falconer's money for a long time. So at last she became suspicious and decided to fly up from Mexico for an accounting. Well, that's true, Christopher, but I was wrong. Oh, no, very wrong. Now, wait. Apparently you've got the absurd idea that this girl is not Helen Falconer. Well, would a fingerprint prove it to you? Not on a driver's license, nor a cigarette case. You know, it was a smart idea having your girlfriend apply for a license under the name of Helen Falconer... But it only proves the murder was well-planned and long-premeditated. You, you, whatever your name is. Christopher, please. Is that I... your ring on your finger? You wear it constantly? You never take it off? You both told me that. Then why isn't the skin underneath the ring white? Why is it as sun-tanned as the rest of your hand? Don't try it, Manners. Don't. Christopher. Christopher. Ah, don't worry. I think he'll live long enough to die as the state directs. Well, I... I... Just did what he told me. I, I didn't know why. I, I, I. Will you. You believe me? Don't you, Christopher? Sure. Sure, I believe you. And I'll bet the jury will, too. I'll bet they won't give you more than ten years. Song, you and your revered ancestors were, well, they were so right. Oh. Yes, greed and duplicity go hand in hand with murder. Arthur Manners killed Helen Falconer on the day she arrived from Mexico. Her body, well, may never be found. But Manners will die because he shot Lawrence Scoville. Yeah, Scoville must have worried him. Oh, yes, the murderers must worry him. And he went through Scoville's hotel room because he was afraid the boy might have a picture of the true Helen Falconer. Then he had to kill him because he followed me. If Scoville had seen the girl I thought was Helen, well, the whole thing would have fallen apart. And the young lady? Oh, the misguided girlfriend of an attorney at law. <laughs> oh, with time off for good behavior, she will still be as beautiful when she gets out. But why were you called in at all? I was the patsy. If the question were ever to come up, I would have been called on to swear that I had found and identified the missing Helen Falconer and returned her to her worried guardian. That way, Manners would have gone right on receiving the money from the dead Helen Falconer's estate. 
Only... Only what, on, Only Manners forgot that the phony Helen Falconer's license had been issued less than six months ago. And Manners forgot that he had told me that the real Helen Falconer had not been backed in the States for more than a year. <laughs> well, our song, we wouldn't have made that mistake. No, would we? Oh, no, Mr. Lutton. <laughs> this humble one can manufacture his own official document when necessary. Yeah, you know, sometimes our song, I think, is a pity that we didn't choose a life of crime. Oh, no, Mr. London. It's very appealing, but unrewarding. Remember it is said, if a man walk even tippy-toe on road of wrongdoing, his reward surely waits him at road's end. The hangman's noose. Uh, how true. But you meet such attractive gals along the way. That was Christopher London, starring Glenn Ford and created especially for radio by the world's most widely read mystery story writer, Earl Stanley Gardner. Christopher London is produced and directed by William N. Robeson and was tonight written by Mindred Lord with music composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. Mr. Ford's supporting company included Joan Banks as the phony Helen Falconer, Ben Wright as Arthur Manners, Charlie Long as our song, Florence Hallop, Ted DeCorsia, Peter Leeds, Will Wright, and Stacey Harris. Be with us again next week when Christopher London returns. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Hour on Sid Valley Radio. Ever heard of the Nags Head Portrait? Heard of it? <laughs> That picture hung in my shack at Nags Head for more than 50 years. Nags Head is near Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. It was during the War of 1812. This woman's been dead three quarters of a century. My husband and the others noticed the schooner under full sail bearing down on that bar out there. A winter's gale was blowing. They put out and boarded her. The cabin looked as if some kind of a fancy woman had been living in it. That picture was hanging on the wall. And my husband took it. And they no more and got off that vessel for it went to pieces. Ah, in all the years, the painting of that young woman hung in our shack, nobody ever figured out who she was. If that painting, the Nags Head Portrait, was Theodosia Burr, it may be a clue to what happened to this remarkable and talented young woman who disappeared more than a century ago. Some men never die. Though they pass from this earth, they are destined never to rest, but to stalk through the gloom, lonely and friendless, until the end of time. For time is the judge, and history the jury. And you, sitting there in judgment on this mystery, you are the 13th juror. This is the first in a series of unsolved mysteries written and directed by Arnold Marquis, creator of NBC's prize-winning programs, Unlimited Horizons, The Pacific Story, The Fifth Horseman, and featuring Kenneth McGowan, distinguished writer, critic, Broadway and Hollywood producer, and chairman of the Department of Theater Arts at the University of California at Los Angeles. Listen now to this mystery as we ask you, the 13th juror, 
What Happened to Theodore Jabir? is Kenneth McGowan. Theodosia Burr, the woman in question, was the daughter of the brilliant and notorious Aaron Burr, the man who almost became President of the United States, who killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, and who was tried for treason because of his complicity in the fabulous Mexican scheme. Just a moment, Mr. McGowan. Oh, yes, Miss Burr. My father was a superior person. An extraordinary person indeed, Miss Burr. He was so elevated above other men that... I regarded him with a strange mixture of humility, admiration, love, and pride. Yes. That will give you some idea of Theodosia's regard for her father. And Aaron Burr, he was on Washington's staff in the Revolutionary War. Colonel Burr supervised every step of her training and education. If I thought that Theodosia would become a mere fashionable woman, with all the attendant frivolity and vacuity of mind, I would earnestly pray God to take her forth with hence. Oh, Father, Father. Grace and allurement are nothing, Theodosia. If a woman is only... Father, very little superstition would be necessary for me to worship you as, as a superior being. A clever and beautiful girl, Theodosia. In stature, she was short like her father, and she had his graceful carriage, noble poise, and snapping black eyes. Her complexion was exquisite. By the time she was 14, she was the hostess of the stately Burr Mansion, Richmond Hill, in New York a large rambling house on the crest of a hill overlooking the Hudson. <laughs> what a playful wit! And what ease and charm your talented daughter has, Colonel Burr. She is a source of uh, gratification to me, or that's all. Oh, naturellement, Colonel. Many famous men, Talleyrand, Louis-Philippe, Jerome Bonaparte, were guests at Richmond Hill. And acting as hostess was beautiful and clever Theodosia Burr, a woman of poise and dignity years before most girls of her age. And Aaron Burr was her inseparable companion and advisor. Washington Irving? Oh, yes, 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 Theodosia, I know. He's studying law, you know, and he comes from a good family. But, uh, is he the man for you, Theo? He's quite talented, too. He's becoming interested in writing. A writer? What is a writer, Theo? Washington Irving might become a great writer. Oh, my little Miss Prissy. Can't you think of any other man? Yes, John. John Vanderbilt? The young Dutchman? Have you seen any of his paintings? Oh, Theo, must you fall in love now? Father, I'm 17. Yes, yes, I know. But why must it be with an improvident artist? Are you going to talk about Joseph Alston again? Joseph Alston is a promising young man, Theo. He is talented, popular, well-traveled. And the possessor of a large estate on the Whackamaw in South Carolina. What is wrong with being a man of affairs and substance? Joseph Alston is also a member of the bar. And a poet. Poet. So, Joseph Alston came to Richmond Hill. Joseph Alston, tall and well-heeled, owner of many slaves and a plantation in North Carolina. <clears throat> Miss Theodosia, marry me. Mr. Alston, I have a sincere friendship for you. No more. You will honor me, Miss Theo. And 
You love the plantation. And Charleston... Charleston is full of plague and excessively hot. And I've heard it resounds with the yells of whipped Negroes. And that its gentlemen absorb themselves in hunting and gaming. And the women do nothing but attend parties and sip tea and try to look prim. But now Theodosia had other things to think about. Her father was running for president against Thomas Jefferson, and Theo was in the midst of it all, campaigning and presiding at rallies and parties, always the gracious hostess, winning more votes with her smiles than the orators won with their speeches. And riding up and down the country also fighting for votes was another personage, Aaron Burr's bitter rival, Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson and Burr. Give it to Jefferson. Give it to Burr. Congress will have to decide. It's got to go to Congress. That's the Constitution. It went to Congress, and after the 35th ballot, Jefferson became president and Aaron Burr became vice president. And now Theodosia could think about herself. Joseph Alston was still there, and on February 2nd, 1801, they were married at Albany. They stayed to see Aaron Burr inaugurated as vice president, and then Joseph Alston packed his 17-year-old bride, the sparkling Theodosia, off to the Oaks, his estate on the Whackamaw in South Carolina, and the next year their baby came, Aaron Burr Alston. <laughs> Come on up here, little fella. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a treasure you are. Mm. <laughs> He's Mama's little treasure. Theo, you're feeling better, I trust. Oh, I wonder if I'll ever get my strength oh, back. Oh, darling, you must rest. Here, let me take the vice president. Vice president? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what a name for the little fella. Yes, that's what we'll call you, the vice president. Let me take him. There. <laughs> Theo, you must lie down and I'm rest. worried I... about Father. And Alexander Hamilton? Yes, they're so bitter... Father says that Alexander Hamilton is trying now, to... Now, Theo, darling, please. Your father's well able to take care of himself. Now, please, darling, just lie down there and rest. Huh? Theodosia languished in the sultry heat, wrote long letters to her father and received long letters from him. The child grew, and Aaron Burr found delight in calling him Gampy, a name the child called him. Theodosia, in her weakness and fever, gave her waning strength to the child and to consideration of the rivalry between her father and Alexander Hamilton. Theo! Theo! Huh? I've just had news that... My father! He's killed Alexander Hamilton. Killed? How do you know? The courier on the coach, they fought a duel in Weehawken. Is father hurt? No, he wasn't touched, but he shot Hamilton down. He wasn't hurt I... at all? He wasn't touched at all, the courier said, but his bullet hit oh, Hamilton and... Thank I... heavens he's safe. They've issued a warrant for his arrest in New York, New Jersey. Warrant? What for? For murder. Oh, no. Many people are killed in duels. Hamilton's own son was killed in a duel only Theo, a few days. darling, your father's disappeared. Nobody knows where. But he's vice president of the United States. He's a fugitive, Theo. And there's scar on the country for him. <laughs> Theo lay back in her huge bed and stared emptily at the ruffled canopy above her. Now and again, she held the child very close, but she no longer called him the vice president, no longer called him Grampy. She lay motionless and stared. 
Cleo could do nothing but wait. If she knew her father, she would hear from him. And one night, she did. One dark night, he appeared at the Alston place on the Mackamaw in South Carolina. Joseph Alston brought him to her room. Father, father, father. There, there, my child. Don't weep, Miss Prissy. Oh, Please. Father, father. Nah, Theo, darling, everything's going to be all right, man. They talked of the duel first, but this was the least of what Aaron Burr had to say. There is untold wealth in Mexico. Mines of silver and gold. Treasure of the Aztecs. But that is in Mexico, Father. Are we to be proscribed by geography? What do we leave here? Chaos, compounded by charlatans and idiots. But all we have is here. And of what value is it? Now, Joseph, in Mexico, you will be head of the nobility. And you, Theodosia... You will be the chief lady of the court. And Gampy will be the heir to the throne. The throne? You, you'll set up a kingdom? An empire. Louisiana Territory, the country west of us, and Mexico. All of Mexico. And I will be emperor. It is all planned. Harmon Benahasset, I will make ambassador to England. General Wilkinson, I will make commander-in-chief of the army. And Commodore Truxton... I may make him Admiral of the Navy. It is a dazzling plan. Please lie down, darling. You it must is a magnificent get... plan, worthy of your talents, Father. What is the loss of a brief tenure as president compared with this? And you, Father, will be the victor over the little men who thwarted you. Oh, we will be the royal family. We who sit here in you this room. You will be Aaron the First, Father. Yes, and little Gampy, sleeping there in his crib. He will take up the reins as emperor when I drop them. You must help us train him, Father. Please lie down. I Theo. knew you get... our time would come, Father. Tell us, what must we do? We will need money. Money to build boats, buy arms, and supplies. Harmon Blenner Hassett will advance the money, and you, Joseph, you can give your security for Excellent, Joseph. The expedition will be fitted out at Blenner Hassett's island near the mouth of the little Kanawha. I go there now to meet with all the leaders. And you must come to help work out the... Uh, both of us, sir? Both of you. I will be waiting for you there. We will come, Father. Theodosia and Joseph Alston went to Blennerhasset Island near the point where the little Kanawha River meets the Ohio. Theodosia's eyes glowed as she listened to her father speak. Flatboats would move down the Ohio to the Mississippi, to New Orleans. Perhaps New Orleans would be seized first. They heard talk of seizing and organizing Texas as a base. And then the plan in mind, Theodosia and Joseph Alston returned to South Carolina to wait. They waited. Theodosia talked to little Gampy, told him about the fabulous land of Mexico, told him how they would go to Mexico City, where someday he would be an emperor. And then the scheme exploded. Treason! Aaron Burr has committed treason! Burr is trying to overthrow the government! Colonel Burr's been caught leading an expedition against the United States and Mexico. They caught your father red-handed. That's right. They caught it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I say, stop it. How dare you speak this way about my father? They arrested him down in Mississippi. I don't believe it. They're bringing him back to Virginia for trial. They brought him back under arrest, and on March 30th, 1807, Colonel Burr was arraigned 
in Richmond before the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, John Marshall. Then began one of the most spectacular trials in American history, a former Vice President of the United States on trial for treason. People flooded into Richmond to see the trial, and Theodosia came too, sick as she was. She took a house in town and began to entertain. You know, Alston, if I may be permitted an observation... Why, of course, sir. Of course. That sparkling smile of Mrs. Alston, sir, wins more friends for her father in one evening than Luther Martin, his attorney, could win for him in a month in court. <laughs> she loses no opportunity, sir. <laughs> And Luther Martin was eloquent. God in heaven, have we already, under our form of government, arrived at a period when a trial in a court of justice, where life is at stake, shall be but a ceremony to transfer innocence from the jail to the gibbet in order to gratify popular indignation excited by bloodthirsty enemies? The trial went on for six months, and Theodosia, with her steadfast courage and her strength, was her father's most powerful defense. The knowledge of my father's innocence, my contempt for his enemies, and the elevation of his mind have kept me above any sensations of depression. At last, while the whole world looked on, Aaron Burr was acquitted. Acquitted, the jury said, because the charge of treason was not proved. Celebrations broke out all over Richmond, but all the same, Aaron Burr was discredited, condemned by public opinion, denounced by the press, and outcast from politics. In the spring of 1908, Colonel Burr was hiding in New York under the alias of Mr. Edwards, and Theodosia was at his side as Miss Mary Ann Edwards. The packet sails are dawn, Miss Prissy. I dread to think that this is our last night together. It is only temporary, Theo. I know the British ministry will adopt my plan to tear Mexico from the grasp of Napoleon. I know they will, Father. And now here. Here are the papers I told you about. Your debtors? Yes. Be sure to see to the collection of these monies. I shall need them for my living in England. Of course, Father. Oh, but the thought of your leaving strikes me to the heart. You'll still have your husband. But and... Joseph is not you, Father. I shall be back sooner than you think, Miss Prissy. <laughs> and now, smile for me. Oh, Father. Father. When shall we ever be together again? Theodosia went back to Joseph and Gampy in South Carolina. Gampy was ailing. She sat beside his bed, stroking his forehead. Day by day, the doctor came and talked in deep, sonorous tones. Outside, the slaves prayed and sang. It was evening. Theodosia stood at the window, looking at the reflection of the setting sun on the wind river. Joseph tiptoed to her side and put his arm around her shoulders. Theo. Slowly she turned toward him. Theo. Gampy is gone. Little boys did. <laughs> Gampy was gone, and her father was gone. Theodosia's health ebbed. She lay listless in her huge bed looking up emptily at the ruffled canopy overhead. She wrote to her father, he wrote to her. Now that she saw his Mexican dream was hopeless, she directed her waning strength toward another objective, to clear the way for his return to America. My dear madam... She wrote to Dolly Madison, wife of the president. You will recall that my father, once your friend, is now in exile. 
and that only the president can restore him to me and to his country. She pleaded for her father. To whatever fate Mr. Madison may doom this application, I trust it will be treated with delicacy, since Mr. Alston is ignorant of this step I have taken in writing to you. Let me entreat you, my dear madam, that you will have the goodness to answer as speedily as possible. Whatever this letter achieved, Theo wrote her father, urging him to return boldly to New York. If your creditors throw you into prison, father, I will leave everything to suffer with you. And at last, after four years of absence, Aaron Burr returned, landed at Boston, then came down to New York. Soon he was in communication with her. When he learned of her ill health, he sent a medical man, Timothy Green, to South Carolina to see her. Your father prays that you may come to him in New York, Mrs. Alston. I must go to him. Theo, you could never stand that trip. I must go to him, Joseph. Ten days of jogging in a stage on that Overland Trail? It's been four years since I've seen him. Your father has asked that I, as a medical man, report to him the state of your health. But I am all right. Timothy Green wrote to Burr that Theodosia could scarcely make the Overland journey. Burr replied, asking him to arrange passage for her on a vessel... Green wrote back, I have engaged passage to New York for your daughter on the swift pilot boat, the Patriot. The war of 1812 was on. The Patriot, which is a schooner, is put in here for refitting. Refitting for a dash to New York with the rich booty of her raids, for the Patriot had been out privateering. My only fears are that Mr. Alston may think the mode of conveyance too undignified. The Patriot's guns were stored below decks, a dangerous thing for a vessel making a run through waters infested by pirates. Also, the British fleet was lying in wait off Cape Hatteras. And there was a strong possibility of being caught in a midwinter storm off the Cape and falling prey to the bankers. But Mrs. Alston is fully bent on going. We sail in about eight days. Eight days later, December 30th, 1812, Theodosia boarded the Patriot at Georgetown. With her came her maid and Timothy Green. With her also came all her trunks. But did she also bring aboard the mysterious painting which has become known as the Nag's Head Portrait? Now the stage is set for the unfinished story that has been a mystery for generations. Read the mainsail! Read the mainsail! Alston went aboard to accompany his wife down to Charleston. I wish I could go to New York with you, Phil. You have no need fear for me, Joseph. Besides, who would take care of the plantation? Feel that fresh wind. I hope you have these fair winds all the way to New York. We will, Joseph. Theo, I'm worried. Oh, Joseph. Well, we are at war with Britain, you know. And the British fleet is certain to be cruising off the Hatter Escape to overhaul any vessel that tries to pass. But you've given Captain Overstocks a letter to the British Admiral asking free passage for me. Besides, the British fleet may never even see us. But it isn't only that, darling. This vessel is a valuable prize, and there's always danger of pirates or bankers. Joseph, Captain Overstocks has told me that the Patriot can outrun any pirate craft. And with Mr. Coons aboard as sailing master, certainly we will not run ashore so that we will fall prey to the bankers. <laughs> oh, Phil, Phil. And so they talked as the Patriot sailed down Winyaw Bay to the bar at Charleston. And there about noon, as Joseph Alston left the ship, he saw Theodosia for the last time. Mm. 
In New York, Aaron Burr stood up in the battery, looking out toward the Narrows, waiting to see the Patriots sailing safely into port. And in South Carolina, Joseph Alston waited for news. Another mail and still no letter. Could the rumors of a gale off Cape Hatteras be true? Joseph's mind was tortured. Three weeks, not one line from her. Oh, gracious God. He wrote again to Aaron Burr. Thirty days have passed. My wife is either captured or lost. What a destiny is mine. When I turned from the grave of my boy, I thought myself no longer vulnerable. Now, my boy, my wife, both gone. What happened to the Patriot and to Theodosia? At the close of the War of 1812, a British admiral ventured an opinion. The letter of Joseph Alston was received and read by me. You were in command of the British fleet off Cape Hatteras? I was, and Alston's request for safe passage was promptly granted. And the schooner bearing the lady went on its way? It did, but a violent storm had arisen which scattered my fleet. Doubtless the pilot boat and all on board were us. Twenty years after the disappearance of the Patriot, a story was published in which a dying sailor made a confession. It, it was on January 3rd, 1813, in the latitude of Cape Hatteras. This is Dominique Yu. We overhauled the schooner and boarded her. And you were the captain? She was the captain. We killed every man of the crew and all the passengers, except... A beautiful young woman. Who was this beautiful young woman? Aaron Burr's daughter, we found out. I fought all my men who went after her. Then I told her I I had to kill her. And you killed her? See, she walked the plank without a word. I watched her sink. She came up once. And then she sank forever. In 1850, an old man named Benjamin Burdick, an inmate of the poorhouse in Cassopolis, Michigan, told another version. I was a sailor on the pirate vessel that captured the schooner off Cape Hatteras. When the captain told the lady she must walk the plank, she asked for a few minutes alone. And what happened? She came back from her cabin, all dressed in white. The most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. I held the plank for her. She stepped up on the plank, calm as she could be. Did she say anything? She knelt down and prayed. Yes. Then she asked us to send word to her father and her husband so they wouldn't keep on wondering what happened to her. Did she mention her son? She said her son was dead. She walked a few steps, then she stopped and raised her arms. She said... Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Then she crossed her arms on her bosom and walked into the ocean. Of all the sins of my worthless life, tripping that plank was the worst. The day after this confession, Benjamin Burdick died. The story had become almost a legend. Aaron Burr was said to have located two other pirates who had confessed making Theodosia walk the plank, and he had prosecuted them until they were hanged. 
A dying sailor in Texas was said to have confessed the same crime, and so on and so on. But none of these accounts was ever verified. But verified or unverified, the mystery is deepened by the nag's head portrait. That's my cousin, Theodosia Burr, as certain as I'm living. Exactly. She has the Burr nose and eyes, and look at that chin. This portrait, you will remember, was found in a shack on Nag's Head on the stormy shore of Lake Hatteras, North Carolina. A hundred years ago, this barren waste of shifting sands was the scene of many shipwrecks. The bankers or land pirates used every means to lure vessels ashore in order to plunder them. On stormy nights, they used to hobble a horse, tie a lantern to its neck, and walk it up and down the shore. Ships passing through these dangerous waters misled by the bobbing light, ventured too close in and were smashed on the bar. Then the bankers swarmed over the hapless victims, slaughtered them, and looted the vessel. My husband was not a land pirate. A nag's head portrait was discovered in this woman's shack in 1869. Like I said, my husband and the others saw the schooner under full sail, bearing down on the bar. And they put out and boarded her. Did your husband bring anything else ashore besides the portrait? Well, he brought me a trunk of woman's clothes. Now, did the clothes fit you? No, they were too small. The solution to the mystery of Theodosia Burr's disappearance may be tied up with a nag's head portrait. If the painting actually is Theodosia, then did the bankers lure the patriot to destruction and murder everyone ashore before bringing the portrait ashore? Many members of the Burr family have said that the woman in the painting bears a family resemblance. And no one in all these years has claimed the portrait is anyone but Theodosia. What then happened to Theodosia Burr? Was Theodosia Burr lost with a patriot in a storm off Cape Hatteras? Was she captured by pirates and made to walk the plank? Was it the patriot that crashed on the shore at Nag's Head? And was Theodosia Burr killed by the bankers? Time is the judge, and history the jury, and you are the 13th juror. The decision rests with you. just heard Kenneth McGowan, distinguished writer, critic, and producer, in The Thirteenth Juror, written and directed by Arnold Marquis. Tune in at this same time in the weeks to come and hear the famous unsolved mysteries of John Wilkes Booth, Niccolo Paganini, The Lost Dauphin. Marshal Ney, and many others on The Thirteenth Juror. The music was composed and conducted by Mort Blickman under the supervision of Henry Russell. This program came to you from Hollywood. The Old Time Radio Hour will be back next Sunday at 4 o'clock. We hope you can join us.
here on Sid Valley Radio.